Hey guys, I think this may might be our first one of the year. Did we do one already? But uh, we have a uh, a little bit of a change of schedule. I'm going to try to do these once a month. And uh, is I don't even think this is the first Friday, is it? This is nice. So we don't we don't have any cool cool things I can give you. I was going to do something uh, like a first Friday or last Friday, but we'll we'll see how the schedule works out. Um, we started doing something that you might have seen on our social media. The Uh, diet intelligence or diet IQ posts. So we're we're sifting through a lot more research or as we go through it, instead of just casting things to the side to determine what we think is most important to present to you guys, we're, we're at least giving you some tidbits like that. I hope that's helpful. And then we'll, we'll stick to these uh, probably about once a month. But if you are not familiar with the concept of diet breaks, might have actually been the study that created a little bit of the the fad in our industry. Um, I'm not sure chicken or the egg, which one came first, but let me show you what's seen as the preeminent study. Diet breaks, the whole concept is because there is such talk about the change of, of metabolic rate, uh, resting metabolic rate, when you start a calorie deficit, uh, different people wanted to see what those boundaries are, if there's a way to limit that so that we can keep energy higher, keep keep resting energy expenditure a little bit higher. So uh, this particular uh, study published in the International Journal of Obesity, uh, as, as I was telling Kevin here off camera, is really, really well done. It's it's It was a, a joy to read how tightly controlled this was. So I'm going to give you a few of those details, but intermittent energy restriction versus continuous dieting improves weight loss efficiency in obese men, the Matador study. Um, so, and, and again, this title is pretty descriptive if you break it down. Minimizing adaptive thermogenesis and deactivating obesity rebound. So we know there's a massive problem with recidivism when it comes to weight loss. And people point in different directions. You can always look at behavior of people. Uh, they reach that goal. Dopamine isn't quite as strong in surging toward that pursuit like they were. They start dabbling with foods they may not be used to. Maybe they've been on a very rigid meal plan. And you get those insulin waves, all kinds of things happen. Uh, you start you start triggering hunger cues. And if anybody's ever done that, um, I, I think a lot of people from a competitive background know what it's like to be super strict and motivated and, and be doing your thing, lose 20, 30 pounds. And then when all of those constraints come off, both from an intrinsic motivation as well as just the floodgate of options and opportunity open to you to eat, the physiology, I think, is harder for most people to handle than they they might have anticipated. I have a lot of people even now who say when we integrate just higher calorie days or maybe vacations that we try to bring calories up to maintenance, which would be kind of an appropriate use of this study, who say, I just get hungrier when I eat more. I would rather stay just consistent and be one of these people who doesn't have these deviations to try to mitigate metabolic adaptation. So it, it's just tough to deal with. It's tough to manage. And and I, I like the premise that these guys were after just to see uh, if, if they could 
find the reason. And there are some surprises. That's why this study is so interesting. Um, so let's, let me finish this sentence anyway, if you guys haven't already. The Matador study examined whether intermittent energy restriction improved weight loss efficiency compared with continuous energy restriction. And if so, whether intermittent energy restriction attenuated compensatory responses associated with energy restriction. So th there's a lot in that sentence, but focus on compensatory responses. We're going we're gonna to look at some of the things physiologically that the researchers think they were able to determine, but it also came down to some behavioral compensatory responses. So part of the difficulty in losing weight and maintaining weight loss by lifestyle change is that body responses to energy restriction through a series of compensatory changes in biological behavioral determinants of body weight. A key component of this is a reduction in resting energy expenditure, which has been observed in lean rodents and humans during fasting and severe energy restriction. Paradoxically, it has also been seen in people uh, after only modest weight loss. So I, I, if you guys remember, we did a whole series on the science of metabolism. A, a lot of our research reviews touch on that, at least tangentially. And all you have to do is start a calorie deficit and within a week, you're already seeing a pretty strong adaptive response. Your metabolism is falling. That doesn't matter what you do. doesn't matter what kind of, of macronutrient distribution. Uh, as they said here, even just a modest weight loss, it, it really starts that triggering. Uh, we did some research reviews where we looked at the hormones. I mean, a, a whole myriad of hormones that, that are in the realm of metabolic science. And, and it's just what the body does instantly to start adapting to that, that calorie deficit. So again, part of the study was to see, okay, if that's true, is there a way with intermittent dieting to bring the metabolism back up? Or as a lot of us kind of learned in the 80s and 90s, if you have a huge meal, a, a free day, a cheat meal, a cheat weekend, something like that, can you have such a wild increase in your metabolic rate that it kind of pays for itself. And, and a lot of people, again, in our era grew up on, on that as kind of a, a mythical way to diet is that you needed that. You need to have those increases in your metabolism. So again, some, something that they're looking at here. Given that uh, resting energy expenditure is determined largely by body size and composition, it is expected to decrease with body loss or with weight loss. However, during energy restriction, resting energy expenditure has been reported to decrease to a greater extent than that expected from changes in body composition. So again, it just, it e even scientists are surprised at how consistent and, and kind of how severe that drop in metabolism is. And, and so they said, you know, this has been commonly known or looked at as adaptive thermogenesis. And I, and I think that's pretty well, uh, you know, descriptive. I, I think it's a it's a good way to see this. I'm not sure if any of you guys do fasting of any sort, even even for just you know blood work things like that, where you may have to fast for 12 or 18 or 24 hours. But you really do feel that in your body. I mean, you instantly start to feel your body kind of slow down. Uh, you can even have body temperature changes like this. Uh, remember, after just 12 to 18 hours of fasting, your liver glycogen is pretty depleted, and that's a good metabolic cue for, for your body to start going into some of these adaptive changes. So this leads markedly to reduced efficiency 
of weight loss. For instance, we and others have shown that at the onset of prolonged continuous energy restriction interventions, actual weight loss was almost 100% of that expected from energy calculations. However, as the period of continuous energy restriction continues, weight loss per unit energy deficit was substantially reduced and a large proportion of the less than expected weight loss could be explained by the reduction in resting energy expenditure. So again, metabolism is going to fall. Can we stop that? Can we prevent that? That's the, that's the subject matter today. Although some studies of adults and overweight or obesity suggest that compensatory responses to energy restriction and weight loss persist beyond energy, uh, uh, energy restriction period, other research suggests that many of the responses can be reversed following a 7 to 14 day period of energy balance post weight loss. This raises the possibility that periods of deliberate energy balance could be exploited during dietary interventions to enhance the efficiency of weight loss. So this kind of points me back to one of the studies that we looked at, which showed that within 10 days of continuous energy restriction, the metabolism dropped correlated to thyroid hormone. And then throughout the entire period, the, that stayed kind of the same, that you, you hit the bottom and then even after three to five months of dieting, an average of 45 pounds, those particular subjects within 10 days of returning back to maintenance, their metabolic rates, their resting energy expenditure came right back up. So there is some evidence that these guys, I think we're looking in the right place that if you can do that in 10 days, let's just round up to two weeks, how many times can you just have a two-week intermittent break in dieting and bring the metabolism back up? I think they knew, uh, it's certainly part of the research canon on this topic, that you don't get these supercharged metabolic curves like I just described. Uh, but just to bring it back up to normal could be beneficial. So, so that's what they did in this study. Uh, I think I have one more little thing here to read, and then, then we'll get into some of the methodology. Based on the above considerations, we examine the effects of repeated, repeatedly interrupting energy restriction with deliberate periods of energy balance uh, in terms of its effect on body weight, body composition, and resting energy expenditure. We hypothesized, now this is, the reason I put this slide in here is because their, their hypothesis was kind of wrong, but we'll get to that later. Uh, we hypothesized that compared with continuous energy restriction, intermittent energy restriction delivered as alternating two-week blocks of energy restriction in energy balance or maintenance eating would result in more efficient weight and fat loss and that the compensatory reduction, so the metabolism in resting energy expenditure, typically associated with continuous uh, energy restriction would be attenuated, that we could just kind of bring that metabolism back up and, and that would save the day. All right, so before we get into those results, they recruited 47 obese men. Um, they divided them pretty equally. So you see the control group and the intervention group, 23 and 24 subjects each, right around 40 years old. Uh, they're, they're actually, because this diet was pretty aggressive, there was a decent amount of, of attrition. So 19 finished in the control group, 17 in the intervention, and... You remember the continuous dieting group, because as the next line shows, was a 16-week intervention. Uh, they finished sooner. The other group, they wanted the same total energy consumption, but since they had, or, or same amount of dieting, uh, they had they had those breaks in there. Uh, 
So it was set up to be 16 total weeks of dieting, but they started with a four-week baseline period to make sure everybody knew that their subjects had the you know right energy balance for their food intake. Um, then they also, at the end, had an eight-week post-diet uh, intervention where they wanted to make sure they were brought up just to maintenance levels. So four weeks pre to get things baselined, 16 weeks of dieting, or the other group was two weeks on, two weeks off, two weeks on, two weeks off. So that extended it. Then they all had eight weeks afterwards to recalibrate and bring maintenance levels back up. Then they were set free. So go forth, live your life however you want. And they were checked back at six months to again, see what had happened in, in the interim. So here's what made this a little bit tougher. Uh, they had a 67% food intake of maintenance. For frame of reference, if my metabolic needs, my maintenance levels of eating right now was 2000 calories, that would drop me down to about 1350. That's a that's a harsh diet. I mean, that's that that's hunger. Um, so I can see why there was some attrition, but I'm guessing they did this uh, because they really did want to put some pressure on the metabolism. They wanted to see if that kind of, of intervention of having a two-week diet phase, two-week break, two-week diet phase, two-week break, if that really was a difference. If it was more subtle, they were probably afraid that they just wouldn't get a very marked difference. Uh it was a diet that I would certainly think is is sound, you know, 15 to 20% protein, 50 to 60 carb, 25 to 30 fat. Um, and again, what they were testing, we already talked about was total body weight, fat-free mass, and then energy expenditure. What was their resting uh, metabolic rate? So down to the, the results, the diet break group lost 31 pounds the control group lost 20. Now remember, same exact calorie deficit for the same 16 weeks of intervention. It was either just 16 weeks of continuous, that's the control group, or the diet break group, the intervention group, uh, which is two weeks on, two weeks off, two weeks on, two weeks off. So the same 16 weeks, but they had twice the amount of time because they had those diet breaks. Um, the diet break group, the fat-free mass and the control group mass, uh, was almost identical. So lean body mass lost versus fat-free mass, uh, was, was pretty sound, uh, which was a little bit interesting to me because I, I would think that with the two weeks of maintenance eating in between, I would have thought you'd be a little better at, at holding on to lean body mass and, and maybe they did to, to just a 1% difference. But since they lost a third less, um, you know, it, it just, it just, it really seems like it is more body composition that attenuates actual lean body mass loss. So those who were dieting a little more aggressively with the continuous versus the inter intermediate, lean body mass just wasn't that different. So here's, Here's what was surprising to them because they are calling this an insignificant difference. So the diet break group versus the control group or the continuous um, you know, dieting group, the resting energy expenditure, the metabolic rate 
dropped in total. Now this is compared, this, this is not adjusting for their actual loss. 360 calories uh, in, the, in the diet break group and in the control group, almost 750. So you would think, wow, they proved their hypothesis. The metabolic rate was, was half in the intermittent dieting group. Um, but when adjusted for that body comp change, it wasn't that significant. It was 502 calories compared to 642. Still an improvement, still an improvement. It just did not move the needle for them to say that we found the, you know, the, the answer that, that it really is a fact that with these diet breaks, you can completely attenuate metabolic change. So going back to one of their, their points that, that, you know, initially we, we looked at this as its body composition and total body mass as the, 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 the biggest factors of metabolic rate period. And that tends to stand true with the adjusted uh, numbers here, but it, it's still, I think it's more significant than they gave it credit for because that's still a good change. Um, if you look at the adjusted levels, if if you could finish a diet and say, well, my metabolic rate dropped 500 calories or it dropped 640 calories, I would take the 500. It's just, you know, it's a, it, it's a, it's a snack. Uh, and that's why they said it's not that significant. So, so why, let me, let me go back for a second. So why the extra 11 pounds? Where did that come from? Over the course of 16 weeks, they're saying that that difference could not be because of metabolism. You would not get a, a you know, almost 30, is it 35% uh, improvement with, with that level of metabolic change. The math just doesn't work. So there must be something else. That's, that's kind of the mystery to solve. Uh, I'm not going to really go through some of these charts. It just shows the differences that uh, we already went through, you know, weight loss and so forth, resting metabolic rate, the change in fat-free mass that was pretty, again, you know, adjusted for their actual losses, just, just almost identical. Um, some things we've talked about in the past, how metabolism kind of does come down quickly with energy restriction, and then it kind of levels off or bounces back a little bit. It has a little bit of a latency cycle there. Uh, it's kind of shown in these graphs, but let's get to some of their concluded remarks and then, then we'll kind of break this down ourselves. In conclusion, intermittent energy restriction delivered as alternating two week blocks of energy restriction and energy balance resulted in greater weight loss without greater loss of fat-free mass, uh, attenuation of the reduction in resting energy expenditure and superior weight loss retention after six months something that we didn't really cover there, but uh, even after their free living, you know, six months, they still had, had uh, maintained more of that. But while adaptive reductions in resting energy expenditure were attenuated using this 2-2 intermittent uh, energy restriction approach, it is possible that greater weight loss in the uh, intervention group may also be due to reduced compensation in other energetic functions such as the thermic effect of food and active energy expenditure. Let, let me stop there. So uh, you guys may know what thermogenesis is. When we consume food, uh, our bodies, the digestive process, the assimilation of those nutrients, that takes energy. 
So when we consume food, we burn more calories. That's why you may have experienced when you have a really big meal and you feel hot or you may sweat, you know, that kind of thing in a, in a really big meal. Uh, or as I said, in a fasting situation, you can even feel colder and so forth. So that's, that's the thermic effect of food. But we also know that NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, is a really, really big part. That's been concluded in the last decade ad nauseum. So the people who dieted continuously for 16 weeks, they just feel a little bit more consistent malaise. They don't get up as often. They don't fidget as off as, as much. They just, they, they, their bodies slow down without them even knowing it. It's, it's very neurological. So if you have the two weeks on, two weeks off, those people may have just had those increases of, of energy, and that's a possibility. Um, but there is one more surprise or one more thing I want to talk about toward the end here. Additionally, there is a need to investigate the effectiveness of this dietary approach when individuals are not provided meals, something we often talk about here in a tightly controlled metabolic study. But also, this was not a metabolic ward study. None of those times were were in patient. Uh, the meals and the food were provided, but that doesn't mean people had to stick to it. Uh, therefore, while additional work is needed to further investigate the, the mechanistic basis for this novel inter intermittent approach, these findings provide preliminary support for the model as a superior alternative. So on face value, let's set aside some of these mechanistic details for a second, which we'll get to, uh, and just say, well, look, you know, is a very tightly controlled study, randomized controlled study. Uh, it was done very, very well. They had all kinds of controls in place so that we can say this is a, a very good peer-reviewed study. And the people, given the same amount of calorie restrictions, same amount of calorie loss in their food intake, the people who did it the intermittent way, they lost a third more. But it did cost them twice as much time. That's a factor. Um, I don't I don't know if I could convince a client who comes into our company, here's what we're going to do. I know you're excited to lose some weight, get healthier. We're going to do this. But every two weeks, you're not going to diet. You're not going to have any progress. And you just have to trust me that even though this takes twice as long, it's going to be more effective. You could argue that it's going to be easier because you get those breaks. I don't know if that's a hard sell or not. I've never tried it. I, I typically, with my clients, just understand some of these needs come up naturally. We have vacations, holidays, things like that. It may be a weekend diet break. It may be a week. Um, but this this would be a new thing for me to try. Uh, energy restriction, in, oh, I'm sorry. Well, while not a limitation, it is also important to acknowledge that we cannot determine from the present data whether two weeks is the optimal duration for energy restriction and energy balance blocks, only that this intervention resulted in more effective weight loss than continuous energy restriction. Indeed, it may be useful to investigate further durations and ratios of energy restriction to energy balance given the recent findings of Muller et al. suggesting adaptive thermogenesis may be completely manifest within just one week of energy restriction. So one of the things that we had talked about, um, you know, the fact that it could happen even, even sooner. Um, so let me bring you guys back in here, but I want to, I want to bring up one point that uh, some people talk about in or about this study, but they don't really address it that much. I, I'll tell you how they addressed it because this was not an inpatient study. 
it could be that the people on the continuous dieting 16 weeks just, quote, cheated more on their diet. Uh, everybody else got two weeks on, two weeks off. And, you know, maybe the people with 16 weeks continuously, they just started nibbling a little bit here and there. And and that's that's kind of how a lot of people interpret this, that you could look at this as more behavioral than metabolic. If you remember, the researchers concluded the math just didn't work, that we can blame this all on resting energy expenditure. It's not just the, the adaptive metabolic change. So they said it could have been thermogenesis, internal thermogenesis, as well as non-exercise activity, that kind of thing, which is also a possibility. But behaviorally, we just don't know if that control group you know, ate a little bit more. The researchers did address that, and they said, when you look at how the different blocks of time, two weeks on, two weeks off versus 16, and they did their metabolic analysis in the four weeks prior when they were baselining everybody. And then the eight weeks after when they were baselining everybody out back up to a maintenance level, they said in our calculations, it looks like people's food intake was pretty consistent. You know, they have ways of seeing if you're losing, you know, if, if you're in that period of time when they're testing you and you're gaining or losing substantially more or less than the heart of the diet, then they could say, okay, there was a problem on you, on your behavior there in the middle, because uh, we're getting two totally different readings when it's more controlled. But again, even those intro and outro periods were not inpatient. So, I mean, I think it's a good, good thing for them to look at as they did, but I would still say that's a possibility. So my thought right now, as I said, is it's, it's, great to see that they had such a different result. And that alone is probably all that matters, right? Like, I mean, it's just if, if somebody gets that much more body fat loss for the same calorie expenditure, and the recidivism six months post was even improved, whether you do two weeks on two weeks off or not, it shows that diet breaks of some sort that are planned versus unplanned, unmitigated, perhaps binge eating episodes, but more of a planned approach, you know, could be effective. So, uh, Kevin, what, what do you, what do you think in terms of the study itself? Anything that I, you know, brought forward or just your practical application? If this is something, if, if this makes you think that, Hey, this is something we could implement a little bit differently. I think you're the first one to actually address the discrepancy in the calorie difference and attributing it to whatever it might be. Other, like Dr. Nadalski and, of course, Lane, who've broken down this in past years, I don't recall them ever highlighting that and going into what the possibility of those of that discrepancy might lead to, which uh, I've never, I've, I haven't really considered it myself until now, but um, you know, your explanation of needs certainly makes sense. Yes, there could be cheating, but um, that's just, I'm kind of embarrassed. I never thought of that until now, but, um, you know, the practicality is I had used diet breaks more for just the psychological benefit. So um, just to give that permission of having a week or two and 
patient, you know, clients appreciate that. They just, and just knowing that it's either coming, whether it is in a kind of a hasty, acute sense where they have something coming, they just prefer to take a the weekend or a week off, or in some cases where it's like, okay, we got, we do have an event coming. We've been going, you know, we just got off a holiday. So if we have six weeks, then let's maybe be aggressive in this, in that short span so that when this event comes in, we can have some, you know, moderate flexibility there with the understanding of there's some aggressiveness to kind of speed the speed up the gun in a way. So to them, that's just nice to know they have a break coming. So they they're willing to go more intensely for six weeks or whatever short time frame may be. I, I totally agree. And, and that's why I, I also like to plan those things. It's always a discussion point with vacations and holidays and that sort of thing. Uh, but even uh, not in this particular study, but other people have looked at calorie increases like, hey, let's have a higher calorie meal once a week or a higher calorie day, even if it's really, really healthy food and, and controlled. Um, a lot of people have gotten into the habit now of saying, well, you know, hey, if we break that up over a couple of days, so instead of a huge bolus intake, it's more of a moderate one over a couple of days, maybe that's helpful. I, I don't think that's going to really change metabolic efficiency at all because uh, you need, as these researchers said, at least a week to 10 days. They chose two weeks just to round up. But another thing to what you said about NEAT, if you look at the control group or the continuous dieting group, they lost 35% less. So you would think that their metabolic rates wouldn't be actually lower that even adjusted for the the change being 140 or 150 calories lower um and so the diet breaks did definitely kind of tent the resting energy expenditure up a little bit um so you know i i think there is some value here um i just like i said from a practical standpoint i'm not sure how clients might want to approach that uh, Jennifer, what do you think? So one of the things um, that was a question in my mind, and I don't know how they did this or whether it's put out in the article, but when they went back on to their, so when the, the diet break people went back onto their maintenance level in, their, in that two-week block, was that energy adjusted for their new body weight? Um um, I don't think they addressed that. Uh, yeah. they, they wouldn't have come back in to be tested. Uh, there may, there might've just been some inferences given on just what we think. Um, cause it kind of makes a difference if you're losing significant weight loss. Um, you know, our experience generally with diet breaks, I think within this company and with other people that I'm aware of. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and even talking to people on their, their current personal journeys, um, uh, is that, uh, we've, one of the big things about a diet break, and this was a, this, we talked about this fairly extensively in the NCGM a couple of months ago. One of the big things about a diet break is an opportunity to practice maintenance. So like, you know, I know some people who are going through weight loss journeys, 60, 80, a hundred pounds. And, you know, it might be a two month break, but that's the opportunity to learn what maintenance is now at this new lower body weight and practice it 
and then make sure that it is actually maintenance for you. So you you want to have a long enough time first that um, you really find out, you know, has the metabolism rebounded and to what extent, and then are people able to continue um, with their with their new maintenance in a successful manner, you know, and and you want to see how maintenance looks, and you want people to understand maintenance skills, and so this is still a very important progress time. So this is important for clients to understand that this is really intimate to your progress. We are going to take a little break here because you've lost you know a lot, and we want you to learn how to manage it and what this means when we stop before we start again. So you continue to build the skills and we continue to figure out for you as you go, what maintenance is going to look like for you. Yes. And that's a really great point on what Kevin was talking about, the practicality aspect and the psychological aspect. Uh, Kevin and I both found the same thing in the study. They did use kind of a regression equation on what they would assume, you know, as people were losing weight, what that would be. And those really do stand up. You know, we, we've seen that hormonally in some of those correlations to absolute metabolic rate change. Um, so that's what they they did. They didn't have people come in every two weeks and get metabolically cart tested again and so forth. Um, you know, the other thing that, that brings up a good point, uh, I think it's it's sometimes uh, a little bit of a an Achilles heel for consumers of research to look at a study like this and say, wow, there were only 17 people in this group and 19. That's not very many. Wouldn't it be great to have, you know, 10 million people studied like this? But in a randomized controlled trial like this, that is such a tightly controlled mechanistic study, and you can see, I mean, think think of if, if I was comparing myself to Jen and we got these results, we'd be like, okay, you know, does that really tell us anything? We have two totally different metabolic rates and, and sets of DNA, but then you get two people versus two people and you see some correlations in three versus three. So you get up to 17 and 19 people in a study like this, you're getting some really good scatter plot distribution. I mean, it's it's very reliable and their their p values were very high. So, am I understanding correctly then that they at least made an estimate of what maintenance would be during those two week breaks and adapted it as the body weight went down without doing full metabolic cart and things? But they at least used an algorithm so that they were doing something to to make it truly be maintenance at the new weight. And I think that that's a really important, strong part um, of this, this study. And particularly, maybe that's another behavioral reason why people may have done better in the breaks group is because, yeah, they were gaining other skills. They were learning maintenance. They were learning still to eat less than they used to, even on those breaks. What would be really cool as a follow-up study is not drop people down to, you know, to 67% of food intake. I mean, that's so yeah. like, you know, because the metabolic rate changes were, you know, 500 calories versus 650, you know, who knows if that could have been attenuated even more. And so it, you know, if it was more of a, you know, I don't want to say sane as in this is disqualifying, but just more modest restriction, you know, that those metabolic changes could have been way better. Yeah. I had one of those kind of decreases once for a, a, a comp prep and went from, you know, 1800 to, to 1200 in the, the first week I was dying. I mean, it was just absolutely not, especially for an ectomorph. 
Oh my gosh. Like 1800, I was already dieting and losing that. You know, that it was awful. (laughs) Uh, Amy, what do you think? Any, any thoughts? More, more to the same, really, you know, just kind of pondering the, the body's defense of a metabolic set point as well. And having those periods of diet breaks, and it would be interesting, you know, there's a lot of talk now with people using like GLP ones to lose massive amounts of weight and they lose it so rapidly. And then they all freak out when they stall, when they don't really understand that, like there is some period almost of like, not even rebounding of like, just of your body needing to adjust to its new state and to its, you know, to your new body size and body shape and your intake, you know, like uh, what your new maintenance really is like Dr. Souders was saying, and having that ability to stay in that for a period of time to allow your body to adjust all those factors, even if you aren't losing massive amounts of weight. I mean, the people in this study were obese, but for someone even losing smaller amounts of weight, just to kind of give your body a chance to adapt and then go again. Um, I think Mike Israel is so big on the, uh, kind of cyclical dieting, you know, that never hard dieting for more than like 12 to 16 weeks, and then always having a maintenance phase or like a coasting phase before you kind of go again to either build or cut. Uh, Super interesting that it just allows maybe the body to kind of overall respond better in the long run. And I agree, most Americans, most people are probably very impatient and wanting to see super fast results. But if you told someone at the end of a year that they would have lost not only more weight, but be able to maybe maintain that weight at a higher, you know, at an intake that wasn't so aggressive rather than the person who had to get so low and go so aggressive and then was kind of stuck there, you know, that their maintenance maybe didn't come back up as much. I mean, the 150 calories, and that's more than 10% of what some of these people were probably eating. So like, that's meaningful in the course of, you know, the overall looking at somebody's diet. So yeah, it would be interesting to do a longer term study to see how these people did over, you know, maybe a year of doing this cycle. Yeah. And to Kevin's point that he just typed, um, they, they made a great correlation or at least a parallel to exercise um, cycling, you know, kind of the periodization of how we would do an exercise model progression. And it's very in fashion right now for people to intentionally overreach. It's a nice soft way of saying we're not overtraining. We're just getting kind of close. Uh, but then you need to take a week every once in a while to, to really rest and deload. And so uh, a lot of my clients who are really prolifically, you know, reading some content from influencers in our, in our industry, you know, often say that, like, I want to, I want to train really, really, really hard for three weeks and then have a week of deload, you know, meaning they're not just completely resting, but they're, they're taking the the load and the intensity out of the equation and kind of doing a walkthrough week. And that could be a good parallel to this instead of two weeks on two weeks off, Kevin, maybe a better discussion with clients would be, we're going to diet really, really effectively for a month, take a week, take a week off diet for a month, take a week off. Uh, and again, I mean, that would be an entire different study, right? Like what if, what if they could get a hundred people, you know, 10 or 20 in each cohort and study different lengths of time? Uh, that would be interesting, but from a practical standpoint, you know, metabolically, they're thinking that within two weeks, you're, you're kind of hitting bottom and you're starting to see so much metabolic regression that they wanted to come back up for two weeks, two weeks on, two weeks off. So that third, fourth week, or as you mentioned, Mike Isratel, you know, even 16 weeks, you may be out of bounds of this particular study. Like you may not get those, 
you know, sufficient metabolic impact points to do that. It may be just psychological benefit at that point and not metabolic, but I don't know. Um, I feel like I want to find some clients who want to try this a little bit, just even from the psychological break perspective, it could be very, very helpful. In any other uh, wrap up thoughts in this one? I'm with you on the psychological component. Cause I really do feel like that's a huge part of this. I mean, even that's the first place your mind goes to is you think, well, these people must've been cheating the ones who didn't lose as much weight, but there is something I think that is deeper than that with the psychological component of having like a carrot, you know, not a physical carrot, like chasing a carrot, a little bit of a goal. Like when you have like really nice short-term goals along the way, it kind of keeps that motivation going also. So adherence, maybe even with the dietary adherence seeming the same overall, like there's a psychological component of you just being less stressed about it because you're getting these wins along the way, you know, the win of getting to have a little bit of a break. Well, really interesting to that, Amy, one of the diet IQ posts we had this week was a study where when, when interviewing people who had regained weight, like here was the intervention and then it was, it was just like this, you know, here's the actual intervention. Here's what we want to study, but we also want to kind of tag on a post-intervention analysis and see who does better in the particular study I posted this week. You know, all of the people who regained weight after this particular study, they all said, you know, it was just me. I was just, I wasn't even hungry, never really felt hungry. I was just, you know, I'd walk into the kitchen and grab, grab the Doritos or something. And yet what I, what I interpret that as is we often don't interpret those biological hunger cues as subtly as they might be. So again, like what drove you to the kitchen to look for those Doritos? You may think you weren't hungry, but you, again, you know, getting back to the hypothalamus and just hunger and so forth, like maybe it was just psychological, maybe it was just boredom or, you know, even stress eating and emotional eating is a physical component that's biological cortisol driving you to do that to look for that brain soothing anti-inflammatory effect um so yeah i i, I just think any, anybody who maybe did eat a little bit more you know who knows if they did or not could be biological could be psychological but it's just really hard for even us to tell within ourselves can i ask a follow-up question on that study which i don't know if they if they talked about this but I think something that would be very interesting to look at in asking people who've regained weight is not even the food component, but at what, what part of them disassociates with the creep, you know, that they are going up in clothing sizes or those subtle changes to your body that do happen slowly, but are also happening, especially if you've been at that high point, you know, what is it that allows them to like, not only disassociate from the fact that they are the one in charge, like that they're eating, but that they see their body changing and they just are kind of like, okay, you know, that all that hard work they did to lose it. Like, it's like, there's a disassociation between, wow. I mean, like to lose so much and then to just gain it back, you know? Yeah. I think some people initially feel some of the positive impact, like especially somebody who works out. So I'm regaining some weight and man, I feel a little stronger. I feel a little thicker, a little, a little bigger. And so and, but we're not looking at the negative parts. You know, we're, we're all of a sudden not looking at ourselves in the mirror. We're not looking at body fat necessarily. And then it does, you know, become kind of a protective mechanism. We just don't want to admit we're doing that. Uh, Dr. Souders? 
Yeah. And there's also the dopamine hits when you're losing. People are complimenting you. Wow, you're looking great. You're looking great. And then after you've lost, there's, there's no more. Oh, you're looking great. You're looking great. So you're not getting the maintenance of um, the the external psychological support, you know, from friends and family and stuff. Um, they may not assume that you need support anymore after you've reached your goal. And and that could, couldn't be further from the truth. Mm. You know, back to that biology part two, I would ask you guys, because you have all dieted intentionally at different times, in maintenance, I'm going to put myself in a category where I know enough about nutrition and I know enough about my internal health goals to say, I can tell in a certain day or even a single meal that I'm eating according to my health values or not. And when I'm eating maintenance calories... I don't struggle. My weight doesn't change. My weight, my average weight hasn't changed in the last five years because I haven't been, you know, aggressively, you know, losing and so forth. But as soon as I go in a calorie deficit, it's that biological hunger that all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm, you know, what time is it? When's my next meal? I want to eat. And there are certain foods I don't even crave when I'm in maintenance. I, I just don't even think of them. I don't want them. And then all of a sudden when you're in a calorie deficit, you do. So, you know, again, you know, back to the group that was in the continuous dieting, you know, group, that's a, that is a long time to be at that level of dieting. And I think that's just harder. And then, you know, to Amy's point, even when you're coming back up, dealing with those physiological changes in hunger from the reverse side, you know, that's when the insulin model really does have its strongest application where the more food you consume, you get those higher fluctuations, not as much consistency and a state of lipolysis, you know, fat loss. I'll, I'll speak for myself having gained yo-yo four times in my active weight loss, you know, for over four years. And although I never got up to my peak, which is where I started at, I still got up to two thirties from two seventy six. At one at one point, the lowest at that in that context was 190. So 276 to we'll just say 190 to kind of skip over a year and a half, then up to 230, then down to 175, back to 210, and then ultimately back to where hmm. 155 was the ultimate lowest. But now I'm at 116, have been for 10 years. But my biggest thing was stressors and sense of I had big life events occur that just frankly just deviated my priority. I'm getting married. My job at the hospital sucked balls. So I just did not think about my nutrition and you know, it was just not the priority at the time. Of course, what I know now and having how to deal with it, it wouldn't, you know, I, I it wouldn't have been dealt in that way, but it was just simple neglect or just no, no cognitive, no mental restraint to know how to deal with my nutrition appropriately. And that just crept away. I'm like, oh shit, how'd this happen? And then back to it and know a little bit more each time you go through it. And now it's just automatic. There is no deviation. Can you recall, Kevin, in any of those times, 190 up to 210, up to 220, up to 230? Were there any times in there where you were like, I got to get this back under control or as you're, you, you just kind of stated that I just was busy and it wasn't a priority. And I just internally, 
I'm just curious if there were times when there was a little bit more self-loathing than you might be considering right now. I can't recall. I'm sure there was probably something along the way and I just didn't want to deal with it, which is very unlike me. Um, but then again, to having, having dealt with the problem as long as I did, it's also uncharacteristic. It's not like me either to just let a problem fester like that without succeeding, yet alone de not dealing with it. Um, so I don't know if that's just my lack of maturity during the whole time or just not knowing any better necessarily, but I would just say just it was just a proverbial, okay, 230, you know, just like I hit 276. It was just, while it was less, yes, it was just a matter of, okay, you know, just flip of the switch. We're, we're going back to being objective, adding an exercise if that was not in the equation, which it probably wasn't at that time but i feel like it was but it probably was more so nutrition of just let's be objective i'm eating like an asshole let's let's reel it back in it's almost a rule when i see people who lose a substantial amount of weight intentionally 50 plus pounds i'm always just cringing because if it's their first time their propensity to regain that weight is very very high and it almost always takes two or three dips like you just described you know where you lost and kind of gained a little bit lost gained a little bit um you you are such an outlier to have lost more than 100 pounds and kept it off for 10 years biological determinists like neurologist you know dr sapolsky would say you know not don't try but it's so unlikely for you to exert that kind of extraneous willpower and succeed um wh what do you think your greatest reason i mean, I mean do you feel the genetic pull like like you know I i'm sure six months from now if you started just deviating you know you could easily gain 50 pounds what what keeps you from doing that i just don't want to feel that way it it was not Fun. I couldn't imagine carrying Andra on me all day again, which, you know, that's essentially her weight. You know, I just couldn't, it's unfathomable, yet alone 10 pounds, 50 pounds. It's, I just don't want to feel that way. I, even if I just have a, you know, coming back from campus, it was, this is first world problem, but it was two pounds, or it was just above baseline before I left. Granted, yes, glycogen, there's a lot of good cookies there, but just that, just how sluggish I still felt. I was like, me, I just, it, it's fun, sure, but like, me, I just, I don't feel and perform at my best. I just like, I like being that, that steady with nutrition and exercise. Okay. Good deal. No, no, I mean, that's, um, it's just really interesting because, like I said, it's, it's, it's such an outlier situation. But, uh, Good way to end that. J J Jenner, Amy, do you have anything to even add to that after after Kevin's? I actually do have another <clears throat> another question um, because it does fascinate me. People, I'm going to who... have to go. Actually, oh, um, that's so right, Jen. I'll say I'll say bye and let Amy finish. I just okay. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, take care, Jen. Have a good weekend. Uh, people who do go through cycles of losing massive amounts of weight, I always wonder, like if 
part of the reason why they let themselves get back there is because they actually do believe in themselves and like they believe that they can just lose it again mm-hmm. and I, I because I you know I, I guess I would be so worried if I'd gone through that like you know the struggle and the get there like that you'd be terrified to go back but is there something in their mind that's like oh it's no big deal I'll just do it again and like they have such a strong faith in their ability to just do that again that they're just like okay like 50 up 50 down 40 up 30 down you know that that they just keep believing that they can just keep doing that I think that's a part of it for some people, some personality types. I definitely see, you know, I, I know some people who've done that at large levels, 80 to hundred pounds. And it's like, yeah, I did it. You're right. I'll, I'll do it again. Um, but that's a long trip back up and they like to be okay with that is interesting. I, I have a client right now that I just, this is literally the first time she's ever dieted. I think she's, I think she's exactly my age. And we've already lost maybe 30 or so pounds and it's, it's kind of been in spurts like this, but I I guess unintentionally where there's a couple of really, really good weeks and then kind of a neutral week and a good week or two and a neutral week. And, And I feel like without even planning it, like this study describes, she's just intuitively doing that. Like she gets to a level where, okay, this, this sucks. Two weeks of dieting, three weeks of dieting. I kind of need a break. And she's giving herself that without substantial regain. It's just more of a true maintenance, you know, pause and then back down. So, um, you know, in some way, maybe this is a really good thing to investigate, uh, you know, talking clients into planned minimum breaks. Kevin, you just jumping in to say goodbye? No, I'm just, I really don't want the conversation to end just because it's in it just remind it makes me have to reflect and it's just stuff I've not really thought about deeply in some time, especially or ever, but I, I would have to imagine my nutrition during those times were very largely cliche. Um, and probably somewhat extreme and cringy compared to, you know, my values and philosophy now, um, things I would probably never admit to you, Joe, but I'm in, in in a serious sense, I'm sure that was the the issue. It got me to where I needed to be, but it just was never sustainable from the get go. So, you know, much like my philosophy is now, is just you know, if it's not sustainable from the get go, it's you need to question the 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 approach from that from the very beginning and mold it to where it's going to be. Um, and when it was when I was most successful and dramatic with my weight loss that while the variables of my environment was in my favor and no excuse with that said, taking the philosophy of just being flexible and understanding I can have this and just treating it more seriously. Yes. But more as an actual budget and just allocating and just keeping that mindset, you know, there's call it luck or call it just a correlation, but there's no denying that the results still are the same as they were at that time in that final approach when I was most successful and continue to be because I've just simply have that fortitude of it's not all or nothing. It's not black or white. It's, you know, there's responsibility and, and it's, I don't know, it's everything at that point when it comes to maintenance concepts, but you know, that's when it just clicked psychologically behaviorally, mechanically, and the rest is history. And I still believe that. I I think autonomy is still one of the most 
fundamental positive parts of, of how to approach a calorie deficit. You know, you, you speak of the autonomy of dysflexible dieting. I think of the autonomy of even trying to bridge between intuitive, non-intentional dieting and intentional, you know, rigid dieting. Um, you know, if I, if I know what I'm doing, I know what foods are great. I've, I've tracked macros. I know what my metabolism is capable of. I don't need all of that objectivity. I know it would be helpful. I know it, I know where it would lead me, but contrasting that with the rigidity of saying, well, Hey, you know, if I lose two pounds this month and four next month, and maybe I only lose one the next month, like if I'm okay with that, and it gives me that sense of daily autonomy, that may be even better than this because I'm I'm trying to put myself in this particular study. And, you know, as a competitive pro bodybuilder for almost 20 years, I can't, like I said, imagine just saying I'm going to diet for two weeks and I'm, I'm excited, I'm motivated, and then I er, put on the brakes and I'm not going to diet for two weeks. And then I got to diet again and then pull back and not diet and then diet again. Like all of that stopping and starting seems way harder than just staying in it and having an occasional higher day or high weekend or taking a vacation. Like that just seemed really difficult to me. It's like carb cycling. You know, it's some people really like that and want to have that built in. Um, and that's great. You know, at times it is strategic, but for me, I'd rather have that steady state, even if it is a little bit lower or higher, depending and, on and the, have the autonomy day to day, week to week, you know, instead of two weeks of diet break every month, well, I, if I got that much to play with, let me, you know, have a little extra snack Friday because I'm hungry, a little higher day Sunday because it's a Super Bowl. You know, I mean, again, allocating the total calorie intake for a month, two weeks on, two weeks off. I don't know, since they didn't prove that metabolically it was that significant, maybe mm -hmm. it is better just to autonomously take a slower pace. Which actually goes against the research it's 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 better to be aggressive for that motivation benefit, not for metabolic necessarily, but for just psychological benefit of, and you would think it'd be the opposite because you want to be slow and steady, but it's the affirmation, you know, short-term goals nonetheless, you know, just you're, you're reaching your goal. So if we can be aggressive to reach and therefore may keep motivation higher, research has shown that to be a better short-term thing. But the, of course, that transition of aggressive to more something sensible is what often lacks, of course. Yeah. And maybe I shouldn't have said take that entire two week break and just divvy it up through the month. Like maybe you just don't need that much of a break, but I'll let you guys go. Uh, this was good. Like I said, I, I also, Kevin had heard a lot of people talk about this study and just had never really picked it apart line by line. Um, so I have to believe other people are going to be investigating this because it did show something and it's still a little bit unclear where those boundaries may be. So uh, thanks, you guys, for being here, and I'll see you next time.